We are on an adventure through the four loves. We've spent this past month talking about love. And today we find ourselves in the final chapter of that conversation. But what I hope will be a strong beginning for everything that comes after these conversations and all the great ways I hope that we are learning to love better and to live better for the sake of others. If you would play a game of imagination with me for just a moment and imagine that you are hosting a dinner party, a gathering. Regardless of your age or life stage, if you're an eight-year-old without your own house, pretend you're having your friends over for goldfish and apple juice, but pretend you're having your favorite people over. And you're making preparations for a meal, and perhaps the folks who are joining you are siblings or cousins or friends from the community. Maybe you've wondered for a moment why it is you invited this particular collection of people over. As the moment for the party draws near, perhaps you even pull up your phone and scan the Evite one more time to remind yourself of who's coming, and a thought crosses your mind. Why did I invite him or her? They have a view on politics or religion or culture that can be challenging. Perhaps you struggle to guess what sort of conversations you will all have together. After all, you are a teacher. You are a leader. And some of the friends who will be joining you are lucky if they have a middle school or a high school education. Will they say something silly? Will they say something wrong? How will that feel? And one of the guests is your most impulsive friend. He is all enemy and ego and ally, balled up into one bundle of energy and finds himself standing up and shouting sometimes at gatherings. And you wonder what he might say or do when he shows up for dinner. And you're tired before the gathering even begins. Your heart is filled with love because these are your people who are coming. But you're tired. And not just it's been a busy day tired, but exhausted deep in your bones and in your soul tired. You have a diagnosis, and it turns out your end is near. But your friends, they don't know this, and you've tried to tell them, and they just keep missing it. And so you will have this meal, and they do not know, but this will be your last meal with them. And they gather, and they come, and you love. And scripture tells us that it was just before the Passover meal, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. 
this meal, the evening meal, was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The meal was in progress. The guests had arrived. One of them had in his heart to betray you. And the food was being passed, and there was eating, and there was drinking, and there was talking, and there was laughing, and there was the telling, and the retelling of stories. But no one had finished eating yet. No one was full or ready to be done. After the meal had started, Jesus gets up and he takes his cloak off and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to crawl around the table and wash the feet of his guests, the ones who had or will have broken his heart. He washes their feet. And unlike most of us who, thankfully, have our feet probably tucked into socks and expensive shoes right now, these were ancient Near Eastern travelers, hot, sandal-wearing, sweaty, dusty road before REI sold hiking boots sort of traveling feet. And chances are the folks attending this meal hadn't showered that day. And to wash feet was a custom. This would happen when you arrived at a guest's home, and this was a task performed by a servant, usually the lowest servant in the house. Nobody wanted to do this, and certainly the famed and beloved teacher in the middle of the meal did not do this. Jesus chose this menial task after, after he knew Jesus, Judas was going to betray him, after he had traveled for years and saw all of the flaws in his friends after the scripture tells us he had received all power from God, after all authority in heaven and on earth had been placed in him, after he spent time and years around the table with people who didn't get it, and after Judas decided to betray him, Jesus gets up with all of that power and authority and drops to his knees and washes the feet of his friends. And when he had wa finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them.
and the meal carries on, but the mood has already started to shift. And Friday begins to approach. And the end of the days of Jesus are here. And Peter, impulsive, that's the impulsive friend, he argues with Jesus over this foot washing and he denies Jesus later and Judas slips out and does what he has set his mind to do. And as this evening ends, there are so many things that Jesus could have said and could have encouraged his people toward. But he says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. This journey we've been on through The Four Loves, which is the title of a marvelous book by C.S. Lewis that has been our companion on this journey. This journey has included a conversation about what we call storge love, the four Greek words for love in the New Testament, storge, which is affection, philia, friendship, eros, romance, and agape, charitable love. That is the love we will be talking about today. And we all know love is complex and confusing. We get it wrong over and over and over again. This is why poets and philosophers have waxed eloquent for centuries around the topic of love. It's why we have thousands of novels and movies and songs about love. It's why most of you could cite a time that you felt marvelously loved, but also a moment where you felt deep pain because you felt less than loved. Love is Jesus' commandment to us. And friendship, affection, and eros are just reflections of the agape love that Jesus is giving to us. Agape is the overarching love in which all other loves find their fullest expression. It is unconditional. To define it would say it does not seek a return. It is love for love's sake. There is no conditional statement, no if-then clause in the sentence. It does not operate on if I do this for you, you will do this for me. It loves for love's sake. It does not operate out of need. Agape is willful. It is a conscious decision to be about the good of another. It does not accidentally happen. It does not just creep in and suddenly find itself there. It is a conscious decision, a willful act to pursue the well-being of another. It is charitable and that it seeks the flourishing of others. It is why we can love that which others have decided and deemed unlovable. It's why Jesus was able to love those that his culture and society had set on the margins. 
It is rumored that the English philosopher G.K. Chesterton had a favorite story, and that story was Beauty and the Beast. And he says this about Beauty and the Beast. Among the many lessons that Beauty and the Beast teaches, one is preeminent. That unlovely things must be deeply loved before they become lovable. This is charitable. This is loving that which is unlovable. And last, agape is divine. This is the love that is God, that comes from God. This is not a construct that we have somehow made up along the way throughout human history. The source of this love is God. Agape is the love of God. We are told famously, this is the love we find in John 3.16. For God so agaped the world. This is arguably one of the best known scriptures. There are folks all over the world who perhaps have never been to a church but know this verse because they have been to a football stadium or an athletic event where somebody holds this up on a sign. I remember years ago when I was in college in Kinnick Stadium where thousands upon thousands of fans would come to football games and there were guys every single time that would paint it on their stomachs and put rainbow clown wigs on just so they could show up on TV and have somebody see John 3.16 because it was their way of trying to help people know God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is agape. How do we then live into Jesus' command to love one another? Notice this is a command. Jesus does not say, if you feel like trying this out, go home and think about it. He does not tout it like a Facebook meme that just keeps getting forwarded and forwarded and forwarded. He doesn't say, write it on a piece of paper and tuck it in your pocket and maybe if you remember. He doesn't say, love if you feel like it, but on the days that you don't, it's okay if you choose to skip it. It is a command, a new command I give to you. Think about the passion in your heart and sometimes the fervor inside of you when you have issued a command to somebody. Maybe a colleague, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, a best friend, a group of people. Maybe you were trying to get them to move from one place to another and you commanded them and you wanted them to do what you were saying and not just turn around and go, well, that sounds good, I'll think about that. This is a command. And I confess, I don't really know how to do this that well. This was a tremendously convicting sermon for me because while I am writing about how to love people, I am crashing through my week, arguing with my spouse, finding myself less than loving with my children, working through tension with people that I live with and work with and try to love. And so 
I will stand up here and to the best of God's power in me, try to communicate to you all what this could look like. But my guess is you all have had a similar week. You can probably find a moment this week where you were less than loving, where the things that came out of your mouth or out of your heart were less than what God called us to do. So how do we be about the business of God's love? Because it is not a choice. The reason we have to love is because A, God loves us, and because we then have to learn to love one another because it helps other people experience God. Love makes us vulnerable. I have five things I want to share with you, and the first is simply this. Love makes us vulnerable. Most of us do not like vulnerability. We do not prefer unsafe, unknown, undecided situations. I prefer solid answers and calculated risks. Love is not solid and you cannot calculate. It is challenging and it will hurt you. And it will not always go as planned. Think of Jesus, who made himself vulnerable on his knees, crawling around the dinner table, loving these people who just did not get who he was or what he was about. One of them was going to betray him to his death, and he made himself vulnerable to even him. C.S. Lewis says this, there is no safe investment to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will, will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to overcome the fear of pain and hurt and to accept the fact it is likely to happen. It's been said that parenting is a bit like duct taping your heart to a human being and then sending that human being out into the world to just see what could happen. That is a treacherous and terrifying thought. Some of you know that experience. Others of you have suffered tremendous heartbreak and hurt and maybe you have found a time where you have said, not again. I am not going to put myself in that situation again. I am not going to open myself up to that person again, that moment, that opportunity, never again. We are being invited to overcome that and to love anyway. Love makes us vulnerable. But 1 John 4.18 says that when that love is returned to us or we receive it by God, it says there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Jesus risked love. He loved Lazarus deeply. We're told he wept over his hometown, his beloved city of Jerusalem. He loved it so much, he wept over it. He had a disciple whom he deeply loved. 
Jesus was the opposite of safe, and he dared to open himself up to the vulnerabilities of loving other flawed and broken human beings. So my friends, that is our invitation from the perfect God to love the flaws in one another and open ourselves up to that risk. Second, love is a choice. God chose to create the world and then he chose to love us. We do not exist because of a deficiency in God. God didn't have a need that we are filling. There was not something missing in the divine. God created and then chose to love out of his abundance and his extravagance. And at any time, Jesus could have a conversation with God and maybe they would have decided to just turn this whole thing around. It's not the course of human history. God chooses to let this world continue under his power. He chooses to love us despite our lack of ability to love him back. Love is a choice. John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. And he says this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority. I have this decision to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Love is a choice, and it is one we must choose every single day. My husband Joel and I celebrated our 20th anniversary last week. And after 20 years of marriage, it gave us time to pause and reflect. And early on, I remember thinking to myself, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. I get to be married to this marvelous man who does nothing wrong and has no annoying habits and agrees with me on everything because we were newlyweds. And most of you who are married are nodding right now. 20 years later, there's a lot of teeth gritting, and you wake up every morning, and sometimes you think, I am not the luckiest person in the world. You are the most annoying person in the world. And you have to sort this stuff out. And every single day, there is a choice on whether to keep loving and moving down this track or not. And we choose that every day. And I would be lying to you if I told you that was an easy choice, and he would say the same. These are the choices that we make. We have that opportunity. No one is forcing us to love. We are commanded to love, but we are not forced to love. And we get to make that choice. Third, love transmits blessing. It believes the best. It wants flourishing and goodness for another, and it is the way we can bring that for other people. It sees people who are struggling and brings to them an opportunity for restoration and for hope and for healing. After Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. But the reason we receive blessings in scripture 
is so that we can then be a blessing to others. If we think back to Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of the narrative of God's people, God tells Abram, I will bless you. I will make your people numerous. I will give you a great nation. I will bless you. And the end of that sentence is so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you and make you a blessing for others. Love makes you vulnerable. Love is the choice. Love transmits blessing. It seeks action on behalf of others. Love, fourth, reflects God. In 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage that maybe some of you have heard at a wedding ceremony, after Paul tells us that love is patient and love is kind and it does not boast and it is not proud, and he's talking to a whole community at this point, he's not talking just to a husband and a wife, and he unpacks what love looks like for a community. And then forgotten part of that passage at the end in verse 12, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. We have a limited perspective. We can't see fully. We're looking in a mirror that's reflecting something back. We're looking through a cloudy window. We cannot see fully what God sees. We will one day see that. And so when we look at one another, it can be hard to see the reflection of God in each other. That is what we are invited to do, however. It is much easier to look at the people around us and find ourselves frustrated, angry, hurt, and to think of them as somehow less than God thinks of them. One of the greatest invitations that we have is to see people how God sees them. Who are we to see them as less? That is putting ourselves in the posture and the position of God. If God sees the people in our lives as wonderful, gifted, called, marvelous. Who are we to see them as something less? When we love, we are loving the possibilities that exist inside of a person. If they were to get everything right, what would it be like? And we, if we are honest, are asking somebody else to do that for us. How many of you have had a feeling like that where you've done something wrong or you've had a hard moment and all you want is that person to see you the way you want to be seen or the way God wants you, them to see you? Trust me, I'm, I'm better than this. I've got something inside of me that is divine. When we ask people to love us, we are asking them to see those parts of us and put those in priority not to see only the ugly stuff. Love reflects God. And last, love is rescue. Love is what rescues this mess of human life. So many people, when I 
interact with them lately are so anxious and so upset, understandably, because our culture, everyone is arguing right now. And so many people that I know are like, I gotta stop reading the news, I gotta get off of social media. Everybody is arguing, why is everybody so angry? I had a person share with me at our Saturday night service just last night that he was in the jewel and two men were arguing and hollering. They had never met each other. They were arguing about politics at the grocery store. This feels like what it's coming to. And on top of just our argumentative state, we are, of course, always aware of all of the atrocities that exist in this world, war and famine and poverty and terror. How are we going to get through any of this unless we love one another? We will not argue our way through it. It is very rare that two people locked in the tightest of arguments are going to change one another's opinions. But an act of love who catches someone completely unaware can change the entire trajectory of another person's life. Love is the rescue for that. It is not argues, arguments, it is not politics, it is not policy, it is the love of God that will ultimately rescue. As we tucked my daughter in this past week, uh, my husband was upstairs tucking her in and I came into her bedroom to do the same. And they had somehow landed on the topic of rescuing people. How they got there just by tucking somebody in bed, I don't know. I suspect it was a stall tactic actually on her behalf. And my husband was telling her these two stories. He has strangely been in a position where he has actually rescued two actual people. As a young lifeguard, he pulled a drowning child out of a lake, and as an adult, he performed the Heimlich maneuver on a colleague when they were out for a meal in a restaurant, and his friend was choking. And so my husband tucked her in, and he left the room, and then my daughter looks at me, and she goes, well, mommy, how many people have you rescued? I was like, zero. <laughs> and I felt silly sitting there. I didn't have a great story for her. And tucked her in, went to bed. I said, we rescue people in a million different ways, baby. And I tucked her in. I didn't even realize what I was saying. And as I put these words together, as I prayed about this topic of love, I thought, that is what we do. I mean, all of us are everyday heroes. We don't have to pull people from burning buildings to do it. The people sitting at our tables with their dirty feet that frustrate us, that annoy us, that we live with, that we fight with. These are our people. These are the ones we rescue. These are the invitations before us every single day to love one another as I have loved you. Love is the rescue. It gives all of us the opportunity to be an everyday hero. Not for our own sake, but for the glory of God. And the commitment that any of us who say, I follow Jesus, that commitment, it's for that commitment's sake. Because if we believe those words, we have to do what Jesus commands. So my friends, let us now go and love one another as he has loved us. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this conversation about love. Love is a complicated word. It is audacious to try to take your words and put them into our own context, God, because you are so much bigger and the things you desire for us are so much bigger than we have ever imagined. So Lord, humble us, keep us honest, show us truth, and help us be your people who deeply love one another for the sake of your kingdom and your gentle and loving purposes in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.